Episode 387, Medicare Advantage Trends and How Medicare Advantage Plans Will or Will Not Succeed. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Here's a big thing that Betsy Seals makes clear in this show. Big companies can be successful in Medicare Advantage, MA, and I mean success in all of its financial glory, because they have experience and the scale and also the specialized departments who keep track of all kinds of intricacies that are rate critical to MA success. Specifically, things Betsy Seals talks about as critical success factors, for example, are having relationships with brokers and health systems and other provider organizations. She also makes it clear how much local market knowledge is necessary. A benefit design working great in one local market might be a medical trend disaster in another area with different levels of social determinants of health, SDOH, or different disease patterns. So scaling into new areas isn't a matter of just cutting and pasting. History has shown it's easy enough to go down in a flaming ball of unanticipated medical trend and or OIG, DOJ scrutiny. So this is one thing that big MA carriers can get right and, and potentially for sure benefit patients in their plans. Now, I say this knowing full well that there's a brouhaha afoot in which there are some who are really pro-MA and there are some who are really not. In this show with Betsy Seals today, we do not get into this, i.e. do patients in MA plans fare better than patients in traditional Medicare, but I have a point to make and I'm, I'm just going to make it here. Like most, is this better than that? Questions in healthcare. There is not one answer. And anyone running around espousing pretty much anything as a broad stroke holy grail is pretty much full of it. And I would say that as a general statement. Whether MA is better than traditional Medicare depends on who the patient is and also which MA plan we're talking about here. So starting on the not a fan side of the house, Wendell Potter has said with evidence that if a patient is toward the end of his or her life or acutely ill or needs to go to an NCI-designated cancer center, it could easily be deduced that traditional Medicare is going to be better. On the other hand, there seems to be evidence, including a recent JAMA article by Ravi Parikh, MD, and Zeke Emanuel, MD, that concludes MA produces a 22 to 26% reduction in cost compared to MSSP arrangements. And this is across just a general patient population of all age ranges, if I'm reading the study right. The great results that are discussed in that JAMA article are what can happen when payers and providers align to tackle SDOH and preventative stuff and are willing to go out into the community to curb potentially avoidable downstream acute events. David Carmouche, by the way, on episode 343, talked at length about this. But there are variables here. And, and let me mention one of them. How good the Medicare Advantage plan is at risk-based contracting with physician groups. How good are they at putting patients into accountable relationships with provider organizations who are getting paid to keep their patients healthy? Meaning the MA plan is offering budget-based prospective payment contracts to physician groups. This is the case in that Oshner slash JAMA article example that Dr. David Carmouche was talking about. Oshner 
the health system in Louisiana and MA plans were working together and both assumed risk for this population. Susan Densler, president and CEO over at America's Physician Group's APG, does a great job covering a bunch of these topics on the Race to Value podcast, link in the show notes. Another thing that will impact care quality is how good the plan leadership is at balancing patient care and shareholder demands for profit. Bottom line, it is not productive to be indiscriminately pie-eyed about pretty much anything in healthcare or throw babies out with bathwater on a regular basis. As Gbai has said on this show, and others have said, there's no angels and no devils in healthcare. Everybody is some combination of both. And in general, the only reason anybody does anything in healthcare is because it appeals to their self-interest. So not working with some other healthcare stakeholder because we perceive them as greedy or industry or whatever is going to mean that nobody is working with anybody. Just keep your eyes wide open, check the math, and in your contracts, get actual dollar amounts and not discounts. Today, as mentioned a few times now, I am speaking with Betsy Seals. Betsy Seals is CEO and co-founder of Rebellus Group, a managed care consulting firm working with Medicare Advantage plans. Oh, and one acronym alert before we dive in here, SNP, S-N-P, stands for Special Needs Plan. A special needs plan is a Medicare Advantage coordinated care plan that is specifically designed to provide targeted care and limit enrollment to special needs individuals. So a special needs individual could be any one of the following. It could be an institutionalized individual. It could be a dual eligible, meaning somebody who has Medicare and Medicaid, or an individual with a severe or disabling chronic condition as specified by CMS. SNPs are becoming a bit of a thing in the MA space this year, and Betsy talks about this trend. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Betsy Seals, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you, Stacey. Very glad to be here. The last time that you were here, we did a deep dive into Medicare Advantage in the hot seat and a number of different legislative, regulatory rulemaking that was going on. Anyone who's interested, I would advise you to go back and listen to the earlier show. But let's start here. Is Medicare Advantage still a cash cow, just given all of the efforts made by the federal government to curtail upcoding and all of the other things that are going on that you can also read all about in the New York Times article to this effect that just came out? Yes, you certainly can. Yes, I would absolutely say that Medicare Advantage still should be the most lucrative line of business for any carrier if they're doing it right. And when you say that Medicare Advantage should be the most lucrative line of business, That should in there. Are we saying that because that is the intent of the government? What I meant was that if a Medicare Advantage plan is good at this, they should be able to make a lot of money. And that's what we see time and time again. Medicare Advantage is very difficult in terms of complying with all the thousands and thousands of regulations. So if there weren't a lot of money in it, nobody would do it. And that's really what we see. And relative to the upstart Medicare Advantage plans, right? So we have some very large incumbent plans. Obviously, most people know in the Medicare Advantage line of business, but then we also had some upstarts, some of whom, mentioning Bright Health here, not doing so well. If you were going to give an entrepreneur who's looking at the lucrative potential nature of Medicare Advantage some advice here, what would you recommend that someone know before they go jumping into this market? Number one thing I would say is to hire experts long-time industry experts who know the program inside and out. Yes, a lot of entrepreneurs say, there's a lot of money to be made there. I'm going to jump into the space. 
without understanding the complexity of really surviving in Medicare Advantage. And we see that time and time again. The other piece that I would say I cannot stress enough is to understand the population and the demographics and the SDOH factors of the actual counties that you're entering. Because what applies or what's relevant in Long Beach, California is not going to be the same thing that's relevant in where I live up in Northern California, even in the same state. So extremely important to understand not only the SDOH factors, but also the chronic conditions that are likely to be present within the population that you're serving and really develop a program, not only benefits, but also care management, right? And community-based programs and all of those things that are going to give that Medicare Advantage beneficiary an excellent experience. The point that you are making is that it's a business imperative for an MA, a Medicare Advantage plan, to fully understand its members and what drives their health or sickness. Before we dig deeper into this, let's just explore the why there a little bit. Patients who are not well managed wind up in the hospital, to state the obvious. So let's use hospital readmissions as just an example to explain the point that you're making relative to upstarts, understanding the market or not, I guess, as the case may be. If we're thinking about hospital readmissions, why is it important for a Medicare Advantage plan to have fewer hospital readmissions? Yeah, so I would say a couple of different reasons. Number one, because health outcomes and quality of care do correspond to star ratings. But secondly, because hospital admissions and readmissions are expensive, right? So if you have a beneficiary who's only being readmitted because they went home without clear instructions on how to take their medications and they doubled up, for example, which is something I know my pharmacy team talks about routinely, it's one of the main reasons for a readmission, then that's a cost that could have been completely avoidable if you had the right education going home with that beneficiary and the right check-ins along the way. Those things are much less expensive than readmitting that beneficiary to the hospital. So two things you said there, the second one being a direct impact on medical cost trends because readmissions are expensive. But let's start at the top of your comment. Hospital readmissions can impact star ratings, which can also have a big financial impact because losing stars represents many millions of lost bonus payments for MA plans. So for example, in 2022, 35% of MA plans had 4.5 stars. And in 2023, only 24%, so that's 11% less, had 4.5 stars. This is a big drop. And, and as I said, kind of meaningful fiduciarily at a minimum because star ratings in MA quality bonus programs represent a significant amount of money. And you know this way better than I do. But I saw in KFF, Kaiser Family Foundation, that MA plans will receive an estimated $10 billion in bonus payments in 2022. All of the MA plans who lost stars are scrambling right now, from what I understand, to address the resulting earnings shortfalls as a result. So, so what happened there? One of the biggest reasons, I would say, is that CMS did have a number of kind of COVID accommodations or special circumstances, right, because of that year. And so organizations who were really understanding star ratings and tracking that knew that their star ratings were not likely to stay at that higher level for plan year 2023 and were prepared for that. Some were not prepared for that 
because keep in mind, of course, that star ratings are very complicated, and a lot of the star ratings are years behind in terms of calculation. Yeah, and just tracking back to something that you had mentioned earlier, and I do realize that this is just one example, but just to help me and our listeners understand the juxtaposition of what does an incumbent expert think about and how does that differ from what an upstart might be tempted to do, if we just take the example of hospital readmissions. So you had mentioned that the reason why a Medicare Advantage plan may be concerned about hospital readmissions is because they you get dinged in star ratings, which is costly. But then also, it's just from an actual medical trend standpoint, very costly when patients get readmitted unnecessarily. So if I am a expert Medicare Advantage plan, and I know that hospital readmissions are problematic, How am I controlling hospital readmissions? Let's first start with incumbent. Like, how are they doing this? Look at the reasons why people are being readmitted, right? There are some items that we typically look at. The medication, right? Going home without real medication education. There's no check-in. They take their meds wrong and get readmitted. But there are any number of things that could be impacting readmissions. So it's, again, about looking at data, mining your data, understanding why the readmissions are happening, if that's a trend for your organization and then clinical interventions, pharmacy interventions, so that we can bring those readmissions down. And that really goes across the board, right? So you have gone through one example of what an experienced plan might do in order to stave off readmissions. Upstarts might not have learned hard lessons here in the readmission area, for example, and then they might mess up a whole lot in one year and then feel the financial pain of that Some other examples of problem areas could be, and some of these you've mentioned in other conversations, including the last show that we did together, but upstarts may not take grievances and appeals as seriously as maybe they should or understand how that could be used opportunistically in order to prevent downstream issues by looking at things that people are complaining about. They also could run into network adequacy issues because it's harder to get a contract if you don't have a certain critical mass of members in a certain area. What other things do some of these upstart plans, you know, what are the issues that they tend to maybe overlook or or not take as seriously as maybe an experienced plan might? I would say one area would be product design. You know, again, a product plan benefit package that is going to be really popular in one county, a really competitive county in California, isn't necessarily going to play with the population in a county in Wyoming. So going back to understanding your population that you're planning on serving is really critical. The other piece in reality that's very difficult is getting the agent broker network on your side because the agents and brokers typically in, we'll say, ABC County, USA, they're contracted with the big five carriers and and they go and sell those. They're a well-known name. So a lot of times those agents and brokers, they make contract with a new startup, but they're probably not going to give the same kind of attention to that new contract for a number of reasons. First of all, because they just may not have the confidence that plan is going to really make it in the market. And this is their book of business, right? They want these beneficiaries to have a positive experience. And if they know that this big five offers that positive experience and is going to be here in five years, that's a safer bet. So it's difficult sometimes to really get those agents and brokers on your side as a new startup, and you really have to sell your story. 
that's really critically important. And that's true of network, of the network as well. Yeah, it is clear the power that agents and brokers possess. And it's also becoming very clear the incentives, the overrides and, and all kinds of financial arrangements that agents and brokers may have with especially these larger insurance carriers who may have, they may have a huge books of business with. So I could see as an upstart, it would be very difficult to pay enough for the few potential members that might be eligible or might want this new plan when you have an agent or broker getting paid millions of dollars for incumbent, for members that are on some of these larger plans the total populations. Yeah, and you know, CMS has actually, I want to say it was in 2008, they established a fair market value that the actual agent can receive. So there should be a level playing field from the actual agent, the writing agent perspective. But a lot of it, it again, it goes back to politics, right? Every agent needs a contract with United. But you're only going to keep, you're only going to get and maintain that contract if you're producing. So again, it's politics as well as the actual dollars. And there's also overrides that I heard that are getting paid to the agencies in some. So, you know, if your employer is telling you to do something as a writing agent, there's also that. Certainly that is true. And I have seen those overrides go up and up over the past decade. And of course, those are not supposed to flow down to the agents, but I would put money on the fact that in a lot of situations they are. I will say, I think that this is the next, one of the next areas that CMS will crack down on is agent commissions and those overrides rolling down to the agents or gifts or prizes being provided to agents, which is not permitted. So the things that we've talked about so far, that if you're an upstart, you may not realize the complexity of what you've just gotten yourself into is number one, really understanding how to understand the counties and the populations that you've the, of the markets that you've chosen to enter. What are the chronic conditions there? What are the social determinants of health or the drivers of health that are in those areas? You also said that there's a lot of experience relative to product design, how you put these the benefits together so that you make sure that you're not going to get surprised by what winds up happening as a result of those benefit designs, which you theoretically (laughs) put together based on some model. Also just getting contracts with hospitals, which can lead to network adequacy concerns, certainly. And then lastly, we just talked about issues with brokers who are selling these plans. They're gatekeepers and could be a big barrier to entry if they're too enmeshed in the incumbents. Is there anything else we should add to that list? Look at the data right? Understand not only your demographics and FDOH factors, but then once you start enrolling beneficiaries, understand if they're likely to go to their annual wellness visit, and if they're not, have a plan ready to intervene. We've seen so many organizations have really creative strategies for reaching beneficiaries. We've seen the vans go out, right, to do different types of vaccinations that impact star ratings or to do different types of screenings that impact star ratings. So getting creative if your service area and your market requires it and having those kind of levers ready up front that you can pull as needed. Yeah, I could certainly see that getting creative would be required. You know, if you talk about different players' competitive advantages and incumbents' competitive advantage, their competitive advantages are always going to be related to their size and their scale. So generally speaking, if you're smaller, it's going to be related to your creativity and agility 
to innovate and then operationalize those innovations. So it wouldn't be optional, I think, to be creative. I agree. Before we move into some of the trends that we're seeing, one thing that I don't know if you'd call it a trend, for example, Bright Health is scaling back. Do you have any, and you may not, and I know you don't have anything to do with Bright Health, so this is very much your independent thoughts. Do you have any insights or is Bright Health a lesson in any way? You know, I I think there's a lot of lessons that you could see over the past years in the industry. There's even big five players that have pulled back in certain markets, right? So the question really is, okay, did they get over their skis? Like you said, did they expand too quickly into markets they didn't understand? So that's one thing we see a lot is the core service area they may be doing really well in any health plan, not a specific one. And they decide, okay, we're going to roll this out in five different states. That strategy doesn't work in those five different states. And a lot of times, unfortunately, that plan didn't do the due diligence within all of those other markets to understand exactly what we said, the demographics, SDOH factors, even what's going to play with beneficiaries in that market and why. It could be your spokesperson. You know, if you have a spokesperson that's really famous in your main counties and you move to a county that doesn't really care about that spokesperson, all of that needs to be taken into account. So that's what we see a lot of times is expansion without enough due diligence and thought put behind it. And then those organizations end up having to, to pull out of those markets because they're unsuccessful. What they're not realizing is that you can't just scale based on one proven model. I think that's sort of what you're saying, that a common business playbook is you find something that works and then you roll it out more broadly. But that doesn't always work here. And when I say doesn't always work, maybe closer to not working often. Yeah. <laughs> it usually doesn't, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is very interesting that a success factor for a successful expanding Medicare Advantage plan is going to be not that the model itself is replicable in multiple markets, but their ability to expand and the process and all of the operational elements and modeling that goes into expanding maybe is very efficiently done. Yes, I would agree. And again, those relationships, right? If you expand to, we'll just say Texas, are there agents and brokers there who are going to be on your team who are really going to sell for you? Can you get the desired health systems in your network? All of those things are absolute fundamentals. And then secondly, it's understanding what is the difference between a typical beneficiary in Houston versus a beneficiary in Sacramento, California. And there's a huge difference. And so understanding how to serve that population, how to really resonate with that population in terms of your marketing, those are critical factors for success. Coming out of AEP here, and this might be good timing, what are the new trends that you are seeing in the Medicare Advantage marketplace? Yes. And there's, I would say, a couple of key trends. First of all, we have seen that a lot of the big five players, no surprise here, are expanding into multiple new counties, right? And this is a trend that we expect to continue in the next several years. Medicare Advantage population and penetration continues to grow overall. We've also seen, which I thought was interesting, not surprising to me, but interesting all the same, is a real increase in special needs plans. Not only dual eligible SNPs, chronic care SNPs as well, and even institutional SNPs or institutional equivalent living in the community. So those products are, they are just much harder, right? 
to run than a standard Medicare Advantage product. They also, again, can be even more lucrative if you're doing it right. So what we're seeing is a lot of organizations, from my perspective, saying, okay, we've done a lot of what there is to do with the standard MA product. Where we're really going to go now is into a SNP product. And yes, it's more difficult, but there that's kind of an untapped line that we'll say extra line of business or extra lucrative line of business for a lot of organizations, even though all SNPs are fundamentally MAPDs as well. As you said, a special needs plan, a SNP, is essentially a Medicare Advantage plan. So a special needs plan is effectively one of these Medicare Advantage plans, but maybe you can just provide a little bit of color here. The difference is that special needs plans also focus on certain subsets of the population. For example, a dual eligible special needs plan is for beneficiaries that are eligible for Medicaid and Medicare. So that's a very unique population. And that application, when you're applying for one of those plans, it requires a model of care. How are you going to serve these beneficiaries with these unique and special needs? Another type of special needs plan is a chronic care special needs plan. So these plans apply to beneficiaries with certain chronic conditions, and there is a limited number of different chronic conditions where you can have a special chronic care special needs plan or a C-SNP. And then there's institutional SNPs, which is a beneficiary that is living in an institution, and then institutional equivalents of beneficiaries that need an institutional level of care but are living in the community. So a number of different types of special needs plans. I would say the number one where we're seeing the biggest move is into DSNPs, so dual eligible SNPs. They're a difficult plan to run. So just recapping here, we've got the D as in dual eligible SNPs and what those are when someone's a dual eligible, that means they're eligible for both Medicare and also Medicaid. And this is not true in all cases, but they're older and they have a lower income. And then the C-SNP as in chronic conditions, for example, end stage renal disease is one. You have some of these plans getting, these special needs plans that are getting set up specifically for a patient that has a very specific chronic condition. And then the institutional SNPs, so it's going to be a Medicare Advantage plan that is very specifically for patients who are in an institution or who could be, but they are choosing to stay at home, which is the institutional equivalent plan. So just starting from the top here, if we're talking about the dual eligible, the D-SNP, so these are for older patients who are lower income, definitely need some experience here. To stand one of these up, what would be your insight relative to these DSNPs? Number one thing is to bring in your clinicians because they are going to really understand that the population needs much more. So I'll give some examples. I'll take California. A Medicaid beneficiary and who is also eligible for Medicare, likely over 65, under 65 and disabled, of course. A lot of these beneficiaries may be in the transient community. So how are you going to reach those beneficiaries? And if you do not, if you're not successful in actually reaching those beneficiaries and providing care for those beneficiaries, your star ratings are going to tank, right? Because if you don't even know where they are, you can't provide them care. So those are things to think about when considering entering a dual market or a D-SNP, creating a D-SNP plan is, again, what is the demographic? What are the specific challenges of your population? And that's really the question that I see a lot of organizations maybe don't ask themselves quite enough. 
and why a lot of organizations who do know what they're doing have been hesitant to jump in the, the SNP space or the dual SNP space. And are there any notable examples of companies who are rolling out these DSNP plans? The larger companies are expanding in general and also expanding into the DSNP space. Centene. Yes. And we also do have a number of clients who are planning on adding a decent product next year. So it's it's a trend that we continue to see across the board is, you know, the kind of tapped out their local Medicare Advantage market in terms of the population that they're going to attract to the health plan. So what's next? You can either expand service areas or you can expand, expand your product mix. And a lot of organizations are choosing to expand their product mix, even though they know it is more difficult to run a successful DSNP product as an example. Okay, so let's talk about the C-SNPs, which are the chronic condition special needs plans. What's going on there? What we see is that organizations are focusing on a group or a cluster of chronic conditions and really focusing on how they can impact healthcare outcomes within those chronic conditions. So if I'm a, an organization and I have 100,000 beneficiaries and I realize that I have a large percentage of beneficiaries within that 100,000 beneficiaries that struggles with diabetes, right, or COPD, if you can carve out and make a C-SNP plan, a chronic SNP plan, and really focus on the treatment of those chronic conditions, number one, you get paid more, and number two, you can be much more effective because you're being targeted in the way you're approaching care. So a lot of different strategies around when to carve out that C-SNP or how to carve out that C-SNP. If I have all of my COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease patients who are all together in one special needs plan with benefit designs, which are really conducive to managing those specific conditions, I might be able to do a better job than if they're in sort of a general population. I think that's what you're saying, that you're very pointedly managing this condition and I can get paid more because the capitated rates for a SNP are higher, it sounds like. There's a number of different pieces, but yes, I would hope that you'd be able to better better manage that population if you're focusing specifically on treating those chronic conditions. You know, the other thing which may be related, which I'm not sure if it has a letter, like a D-SNP or C-SNP, but I think you mentioned before that there's also, and I'm not sure if they're SNPs or just it's a regular Medicare Advantage plan by structure that's targeting certain patient populations. Like, for example, you have... Medicare Advantage plans that are targeting Asian, an Asian population or an African-American population or Cubans even, right? Yes, yes. So this has been an interesting trend that we've seen over the past several years and we expect to continue. Really, community leaders or organizations who are focused on different SDOH factors, understanding that different subsets of the population, not just chronic or dual, will be attracted to different types of health plans. We see a number of examples, Clever Care in the L.A. County. We see Gold Kidney, which is a new startup in Arizona focused on kidney care. Leon Health in Miami-Dade County that serves very well the Cuban population, as well as others, of course, within that service area. Interestingly, we saw something very new this year that Scan Health Plan just did, which they created an LGBTQ plus friendly health plan benefit package, which I thought was Certainly a new idea, something that we haven't seen yet until this annual election period, but just goes to show that the kind of ideas and the innovation and the strategy is endless if we're really doing a good job in understanding the needs of the population we serve. 
So I'm very excited about this trend. You could probably tell. Yeah, I could certainly see, for example, you have a plan where all the plan materials are in Korean or in Spanish, for example, that you call the voicemail and you don't have to press six for some other language. That could certainly be something that patients would appreciate. Absolutely. And your sales rep is speaking your native language, right? All of those things. You also mentioned that there are these institutional SNPs for patients who are in institutions. So first question, when you say institution, do you mean long-term care? A beneficiary who requires really around-the-clock care and support within an institution or in their home, which again, that around-the-clock care is going to be provided, but it's going to be provided within the home. For the institution or the institutional equivalent special needs plans, they are being stood up to specifically attract and cater to patients who require round-the-clock care either in an institution somewhere or at their home, but they do still require that level of care. Yes, that's right. And again, you can understand, of course, why those beneficiaries would need a special focus on their needs. So how are these larger carriers or carrier organizations or even startups rolling out these SNPs? Is there anything relative to the infrastructure that's necessary to roll these out that you know of? So the number one thing that I would say that's necessary to the infrastructure with any type of SNP product is a very strong clinical team. That is really the piece that we see in all of these SNP products, clinical intervention. So all of the special needs products require a model of care, which is a very massive document that's submitted along with the application. How are we going to create a model cares for the unique needs of this population? So if we're going to roll this all up, Betsy, into kind of an overall landscape analysis or an overall forecast, what are you seeing? Medicare Advantage is going to continue to increase in popularity and penetration. We're going to continue to see organizations expand into new counties. We're going to continue to see really innovative benefit designs focused on specific populations. We're going to continue to see a focus on SDOH factors, so social determinants of health, and how those factors really have a great impact on health outcomes. Right. So we see a lot of innovation in that area around SDOH factors, and we expect that to continue over the next several years. Betsy Seals, where can people learn more about Rebellus Group if they are interested in learning more about your work? You can go to our website, rebellusgroup.com. We post about key industry trends or regulatory updates. Would love to connect with you all. Betsy Seals, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you, Stacey. Hey, one last thing here. I have been on a bit of a kick lately to try to figure out how to take sponsorships or ads or I don't know, in some way make the show a little bit more financially sustainable. If anybody has any thoughts on this, would love to hear them. Considering that our show Relentless Health Value gets a minimum of twice the number of listens per episode as some of the shows that are considered big in the space. Also along these lines, We're in the top 1% of all podcasts in the U.S. We might, in fact, be the only non-medical healthcare industry show able to say this. Plus, just our amazing and activated and engaged gang of Relentless Health listeners such as yourself. I don't know. Feels like we have a reason to exist that some organization or organizations might be willing to help out to sustain. So let me know if you have any thoughts. 